because of that, I think I should be able to ask a few harder questions. We should be able to get into it now. Okay. I was going to okay. be all surfacey <laughs> and just ask about the book, but like we can kind of open up the rib cage and kind of get into the guts of the matter. Does that sound good? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I owe you. All right. So whatever. <laughs> Yo, welcome back, Cat Rosenfield, to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy, airtight alibi, Yunnan. So the last time Cat visited my summer layer, we discussed her novel, A Trick of Light, co-written by Stan Lee. It was one of his final projects. That novel was a thriller with a sci-fi bent. This time she has a novel. It's another thriller, but this time with a murder mystery bent. Oh, snap. Cat's latest novel is No One Will Miss Her. The back of the novel reads, in part, a smart, witty, crackling novel of psychological suspense in which a girl from a hard, scrabble small town meets a gorgeous Instagram influencer from the big city with a murderous twist that will shock even the most savvy reader. Indeed, even M. Knight wishes he had a shovel because he would so dig this twist. Ooh. Here's a quote from page 55 of No One Will Miss Her, but I was too slow, too stupid. Too innocent to understand that we live in a world where some people like to stomp on little things. And where they tell you afterward that what they had done was a sort of kindness. Oh dear. Alright then, let's investigate Cat Rosenfield's No One Will Miss Her. Of course, we'll conduct this My Summer Layer investigation by the book. I, I want to start this conversation with some terrible psychology. Okay. Are you ready for some terrible psychology? I'm, I'm ready. All right. <laughs> you and I talked on Twitter uh, where I leave kind of like semi-sarcastic comments uh, when you're mm -hmm. discussing quote-unquote serious issues. And one of the first times that we talked, it was about the M. Night movie Signs. Mm -hmm. I've scanned your Twitter account uh, in preparation for this interview. And you've recently talked about like Servant. Like you seem to really dig M. Night. Uh, so here's the terrible psychology. Was the twist in your new novel, No One Will Miss Her, at all influenced by your, like, M. Night fandom? Oh, gosh. I mean, he's certainly aspirational in terms of, of being a guy who can pull out a twist that you didn't see coming. Um, although I think that maybe that reputation has gotten in his way, um, you know, since since the sixth sense, you know, that he's been sort of uh, having to try to top himself and um, that hasn't always gone well for him. But uh, I would say that, you know, in terms of sort of like his, his ability as like, as a writer, you know, with the craft of it to construct a plot and then to then hide the ball so that you don't see what's coming. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, do you have a favorite M. Night twist that you like? Oh, twist? Let's see. Um, I mean, I think the, the Sixth Sense is kind of, I mean, that's the original, right? Yeah. Um, even though now it's now it's sort of overdone. Um, you know, he was dead the whole time. It's like you can't watch a movie now without wondering if the dead person or if, if the living person would actually be dead or if the dead person is really alive. <laughs> um, and, you know, we have him to blame for that and maybe to thank for it. Um, but I actually, so I think I may be the only person in the world who really liked this movie. Um but the visit and the twist there and the way he constructed that in this very like small way um, mm. where, you know, there was so much creepy stuff happening that you were distracted by that and you never really envisioned the sort of the 
you know, also terrifying, but much more mundane idea of two elderly, insane people stealing the identity of, you know, of somebody's grandparents because they yearned to have, you know, grandkids of their own and never had. Um, you know, I thought that was fascinating. That was like a great way to kind of bury something that's frightening, but very possible in the midst of all of this stuff that seems like it might be kind of supernatural. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a much more, I guess, smaller twist, like, because uh, he was kind of in that more humble period, right? Where like some of the blockbusters after Earth and stuff hadn't been working. So that was kind of like a more focused twist, I guess. Intimate twist. Yeah, I feel like that wasn't that movie sort of his comeback after, you know, things had just not worked out for him. It was like he had done, I don't know, what was it? I'm trying to think. There was there was the sixth sense, and then there was Unbreakable, and then there was Signs, and then there was Lady in the Water, and um, that one was that awful. was that was where he kind of jumped the shark, right? Yeah. And um, and yeah, and then I feel like he disappeared for a while after that, uh, and and was you know maybe doing maybe he was doing like producing, but he wasn't writing as much anymore. So I thought it was really interesting and smart of him to come back with something that you know similar to the sixth sense it was a family drama right mm -hmm. like um with with frightening elements but the heart of it was these relationships and i think that's really yeah that's what makes him strong as a writer so you just touched upon like family drama and relationships and that's how i want to segue into your novel uh your thriller uh okay. no one will miss her uh, so that's the title, which is No One Will Miss Her. The her, There are two hers for which the title is applicable, I feel. Mm -hmm. For now, who is the first her? Because your mystery novel opens with a grisly crime scene. Uh, a woman has been murdered. Who is she? Mm -hmm. So our murder victim, who narrates the book From Beyond the Grave, is Lizzie Ouellette. Uh She's sort of the town pariah, this uh, white trash a figure in a small town called Copper Falls in rural Maine. And yeah, you know, she's had a difficult life, um, even in this sort of working class, low income enclave. She herself is seen as trashy by comparison to everybody else because she grew up living in a literal junkyard that her dad owns. Um, she was so she was always sort of you know considered like undesirable um and she served that purpose she was the person that everybody bonded over their loathing of and um then she managed you know sort of by the skin of her teeth uh to seduce the town hero the football player you know the or the in this case baseball player um Dwayne who uh impregnated her and everyone sort of saw that as her fault, like maybe she kind of trapped him. And so they ended up married. She lost the baby. So it's been 10 years since that, that she turns up dead in the bedroom of this lake house that she owns and has been renting to people from out of town, which is another reason why nobody likes her because she rents to outsiders in this very kind of isolated, inclusive community. Yeah, she has a great line on page 139. She said, I had a life. As you said, she's narrating from beyond. So she's obviously using past tense. I had a life. Mm -hmm. I want you to understand that. It may not have been much to look at, but it was mine. If I'd had the choice, I would have kept living it. Right? Uh, I find this kind of an interesting dynamic because, as you said, she was the town pariah. 
Like even when some of the detectives and some of the police officers or the guests, the, the, the sheriffs or whatever, they find her at the beginning, they're all kind of like snickering and they're laughing uh, because they kind of view her as like the local hoe or they kind of look down on her with just a lot of contempt. So it's mm-hmm. it, I like I find that kind of fascinating where like they knew her and they put her in this box and they assumed they knew her, but they didn't actually really know her. Right. That's a major theme within the book is that, you know, there's this question of who are you and who do other people see and is there a difference between these things? And then if there is, and I mean, there always is, um, which one of these is the real you? If you are preceded into every room by your reputation, if people think they know who you are already before they ever meet you, um, who are you really? You know, is this self that you keep close that you understand, but nobody else does, you know, is that really you or are you your public face? Are you the you who moves through the world who everybody else sees? And that dynamic plays out online too, because you can present quote unquote a face on, on social media and you can have like a quote unquote good life or a happy life or present this type of life. I'm thinking of like, I have a friend who was, who's a radio DJ. And so she was one time going through a, a terrible breakup. Uh, but when she would be on the radio, she would be all happy and like new radio heads coming out and like excited and whatever. And then after mm-hmm. she would get off the air, she'd be like crying or like, maybe I should text it. Maybe, I you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So the public face and the private face and the private emotions, uh, there's always going to be a gap there. And that's what we kind of see play out online where people fall into this trap where like, I think I know you based on these like five tweets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we talked about the the her in the, the you know, the mystery woman in the title of the book. Um, there are two women in this story, um, you know, both of whom have the same problem from different angles. You know, Lizzie has grown up in the same town where, you know, people no longer see her. They just see this avatar for everything that they've decided to to hate, you know, even though she's standing right in front of them, nobody really knows her. And uh, then Adrian Richards, who is the other female character in this story, um, who has a sort of a complicated friendship with Lizzie, who was renting her lake house, she's got this online persona, you know, this this public face that she puts out there. Um, that similarly, she's the kind of woman you love to hate. Um, you know, she she prevents, or excuse me, presents this very polished. Um, filtered, curated life um, for people to kind of consume and, and make judgments on. And it obscures the truth of who she is. Yeah, she gets, in the same way that you were talking about, Lizzie has like kind of this reputation in this box. Adrian, she gets like one of the comments when she posted something on Instagram was privileged bitch, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, just kind of like you, like you said, it's an avatar for how we view certain people online. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, there's this notion that if somebody is, well, I mean, when you have the screen sort of separating you in these interactions, um, and when you imagine that the other person is sort of cushioned by wealth or fame or whatever, they're not really real to you. You know, they're, you know, when you express hatred for them, you do it sort of expecting that whatever you're you're swinging at the air, you know, Mm -hmm. your, your punches are not actually landing. Yeah. But do people feel like by calling her like a privileged bitch and like we've seen this kind of behavior play out in real life as well. Like, do people feel like they're, I don't know, making a difference or fighting for the cause or like, I don't know how to frame it. But you know what I'm getting at? Like, oh, I think that they 
that's the justification that you use to say, you know, here's why what I'm doing is not bad, but good, actually. Yeah. And then speaking of good, you have a detective uh, in the middle of all this. And by the way, I like the fact that uh, the last name of your detective is Bird and there's part of the Mm -hmm. book is set in Boston. That was a nice little like NBA (laughs) nod. So, but yeah, uh, your, your detective Ian Bird, of course, he's an outsider. So he comes into Cooper Falls and he is like surrounded by like kind of like that whole tension where like everybody knew who Lizzie was. Everyone had a lot of contempt for her. They're even like snickering when the sheriff and some of the other cops like find her dead body. Mm-hmm. But he is, he's, he's unusual because he doesn't view Lizzie the same way that they view her. Right. He views her as a victim and he has like kind of like a, a little bit of empathy. Uh, there's patience and there's grace. And he's also trying to like uncover what happened. He's kind of like digging in the town things that they have already firmly established. And I, I want to know like digging into things that are kind of like firmly established or like we've already decided on these things. Was that um, his doggedness? And I know he's a detective, but was his doggedness and those kind of traits were those um, injected into like his character based on your journalism work? Because that's what you do. You do the same thing. You kind of like go in there and you turn over rocks and you kind of get into places uh, where like, yo, we already decided this is what this person is. Or like Lizzie's like the local hoe. Like we've already decided these things. And you're like, let's get into it. That's kind of what you do. I never thought about it that way, but that's a really interesting point. Um, yeah, you know, Bird is, uh, we, we certainly share a certain kind of curiosity. Um, and, you know, he cares about, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's interested in the truth. That's, that's his role. And, um, you know, his position as a, you know, being an outsider to this community gives him a different view into its dynamics. And there's stuff that he doesn't understand, but there's also stuff that he understands better because he has the outsider's perspective. So um, I can't say I did that on purpose, but I am certainly intrigued by the idea that he and I might actually be the closest avatar for each other in that book. Yeah, because he has a line uh, on page 235 where he says the type. He's thinking in his head and he says the type. There was something to that, the idea of categories, what kind of woman Lizzie was, what kind of wife, what kind of victim. That's what he's thinking mm-hmm. in his head. So for him, those are open-ended categories, whereas like all the people in the, the small town, they've already made their verdict. You know what I mean? She's from a junkyard. She's junk. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of like your professional like career and some of the work that you do, you're a freelancer. You've written for a number of uh, outlets from like EW, Wired, Vulture, a whole bunch of them. Would you say then that the term freelancer applies intellectually as well? Um, well, yeah, I suppose so. I guess freelance isn't just a lifestyle. It's a mindset to a certain extent. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting because there are certainly trade-offs. Um, you know, being a freelancer obviously implies a certain amount of freedom. Uh, I'm not attached to any one outlet uh, or any one viewpoint. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I write for a lot of different outlets that have, you know, sort of, I would say do, you know, their their platform, politically speaking, is 
quite varied. Um, you know, I write for Unheard, which is like sort of a heterodox, maybe center right uh, website in the UK. I also write for the New Statesman, which is like a socialist magazine. Um, so yeah, you know, it's there is that freedom to kind of land anywhere and say, well, here's you know, it's just here's me. You know, here's me with a perspective that's just unique to me. It's personal to me. Um, at the same time there, you know, to be untethered from any one outlet um, is precarious. You know, you don't have institutional backing. Um, and so it's not as though, I mean, it's not as, I shouldn't say that like, it's not as though any of my editors have thrown me under the bus, um, you know, who, somebody who invited me to write for them and then, um, you know, and then like publicly, uh, like disclaimed my yeah. work um that hasn't happened but you know there is this risk of you know having never landed anywhere permanent of you know finding a door that was once open closed and that's something that has happened um to me it as culture writing particularly has evolved in a certain direction um the type of work that i do or the the areas that i'm interested in poking into um you know certain i would say like mainstream legacy publications um it's become less popular to talk about that stuff i want to pick up on that thread because we view neil degrasse tyson as an expert in astronomy right so mm -hmm. And you kind of kind of fall into that expert category a little bit, like you were recently in that BBC documentary, Anger, Social Media, and Us. <laughs> yeah, that just aired. I haven't, uh, I wasn't able to watch it, <clears throat> okay. so I hope I didn't sound stupid. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you kind of fall into that category of like, again, as we're trying to figure out all these cultural landmines and we keep setting them off you kind of fall into this like quote unquote, not that you necessarily classify yourself as an expert, but just because of the nature of your writing and the topics and things that you like to get into, you've kind of ended up that way. But the thing is with Neil deGrasse Tyson and astronomy, nobody has any like strong feelings about astronomy or like negative experiences or whatever. Right. Um, generally speaking, but I guess what I'm asking is then like, not just as an expert then, but also do you end up kind of becoming almost like a therapist because people have had these negative experiences online, uh, socially and culturally. And so then it becomes this thing like this happened to me. And like, why is this happening? And like, where you, uh, where people kind of just don't know what to do. And like, um, and these weird dog piles are happening. And so do you almost become like pseudo therapy as well? Like a pseudo therapist as well as an expert, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I'm sort of resistant to that role. People do sometimes reach out to me, um, either for advice or, you know, because they think that I might be able to tell their story. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily write about individual sort of pylons or individual cancellations anymore. Um, but I think that what, you know, maybe you're sort of pointing at, um, is that there's a sense I think amongst people who are at the bottom of one of these dog piles um, that, you know, there are only a few people who will actually listen uh, or who will actually consider the, their side of the story. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I certainly, yeah, I certainly do sometimes hear from people, um, you know, on that front. And what I usually do is try to connect them with, um, you know, somebody who actually does want to, to play that role of more of a, 
a therapist or, you know, a, a listening ear. Not that I'm, you know, not happy to to talk about it, but I don't know. I feel like my role in this, um, in the cultural landscape is to just kind of point at stuff um, and talk about it, you know, in a, an observational way. Um, I'm not really that interested in levying judgment on what's happening. Mm-hmm. I just want to be able to talk about it accurately and truthfully. So then how do you avoid burnout? Because I see some of the comments and the responses you get and like the maximum is always like, don't go online if you want to be understood, right? Because <laughs> people will add all kinds of agendas and like take things you say out of context. And I've seen those like uh, comments. You also get the range of stuff like uh, what's wrong with your thinking and you need to shut up and like all those kind of the, the, the stereotypical cliche responses people get. So how do you avoid burnout? How do you kind of like are able to stay in this like quote unquote in the ring and continue to fight? Well, I think that something I do, and I, I know that it drives a lot of people crazy, um, but I won't engage on a point that I haven't actually argued. Um, there's this real phenomenon, especially on Twitter, where people show up like it's a high school debate club, and they're like, here's the point I want to argue, and I'm going to assign you the opposing point, whether you believe it or not, whether you've expressed it or not. And there are people out there who I think are perfectly happy to play that role, but I'm just not one of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I've written a piece, you know, I've advanced a perspective into, you know, the the discourse, um, capital D discourse, and if people want to talk about that or they want to disagree with me, I'm always happy to do that. But I, I, the one thing that I insist on is that they be able to accurately describe to me what points I've actually made. So if you want to say, like, you know, I can't believe that you argued that, like, every puppy in the world should be euthanized and set on fire. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to be like, well, you know. <laughs> I don't I don't think that I'll just sort of say like well that's not you know that's not what I've said and like mm-hmm. until you can until you can come back and accurately kind of until we can agree on what is being discussed here um there's no point to like to launch a conversation from first you have to mutually agree on what it is that you're actually talking about you have to come to a shared understanding of like what set of facts are we working with like mm-hmm. what has been said what hasn't um and so you know, by refusing to engage with that type of thing where somebody will fabricate kind of a a ridiculous straw man argument that's easier for them to knock down um, than whatever it is that you've actually said, um, I'm able to just kind of skip over a lot of the really frustrating aspects of, of engaging in these conversations online, um, you know, because the the bar for me is set in a place where I don't have to waste a lot of time, you know, arguing for like this ghost point that I never made in the first place. And I guess the other thing is like, like Dave Chappelle says, Twitter is not a real place. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's unfortunately a place where if you work in media, as you and I both do, like you have to spend a certain amount of time there. It's professionally advantageous. But the, pe- the way people engage on that platform is very disconnected from anything real, anything physical. And I mean, if you were in a room with somebody who spoke to you the way that a lot of people engage on Twitter, like you would be able to have them removed by, you know, by everybody else there because everyone would be like, who is this person and why are they behaving this yeah. way? Like what, a- <laughs> what an antisocial asshole. <laughs> yeah. Um 
so yeah, you know, I, I think that sort of drawing some drawing some lines um, and just saying like, look, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be a discussion that's centered in, you know, in, in reality, in you know, in the the substance of what's actually been argued, and it's got to be civil. Um, you know, and by sticking to those rules, yeah, sure, you'll get a lot of people like coming at you and being obnoxious, but um, there's just no need to listen to them. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Growing up, the cultural message we got was like, I think it was P.T. Barnum who said it. There's no such thing as bad publicity. That was obviously pre-social media. And like, um, mm-hmm. I think of somebody like Hugh Grant who got arrested for uh, oral sex in a public place and prostitute and all that kind of stuff. And then he went on to make like uh, Notting Hill and Bridget Jones Diary and like about a boy, all his best work followed from that, from his arrest. And now I'm wondering, mm-hmm. like, with social media, it's not pl- publicity so much as attention. Do you, is there different types of attention online? Like, is there such a thing as bad attention online? Sure. I mean, I think that the the bad attention is when somebody becomes a target, and it's. I'm trying to think how to put this. But people aren't interested in engaging with them. You know, it's not about having a conversation with that person. It's about destroying that person. Um, and, civil you know, war, that might. Civil war versus civil discourse. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, you know, where you see people who've decided like, oh, here's, you know, here's the person who on Twitter today we've decided is bad. Um, this person is bad. This person needs to be destroyed. And, you know, you might be a member of like this kind of shouting mob where you're one of a thousand people telling this person that they suck and they should shut up. And, you know, why don't you go die in a hole? Um, or maybe you're one of 50 people who's calling their boss and saying like, you know, how can you employ this person who holds such offensive, horrible views? Mm-hmm. So, in the midst of all of this, who the, the person who's actually under the pile, like they disappear, they get lost. Nobody knows who it is or even necessarily what it is that they're supposed to have done. Um, it becomes about, you know, the destruction for destruction's sake. And so that would be, you know, I think a form of, of negative attention where you just become this object that people are, are kicking at and punching at and, and trying to tear apart. Um, and, you know, is that is that attention? I guess, I guess in a way, you know, in the same way that like, if you're, you know, if you're punching a punching bag, the bag is getting attention, like you're looking <laughs> at it, you're aiming at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's, um, yeah, I don't know how you would describe that. I bring up these topics because you write about them and you kind of deal with them. And I've seen like, I follow you. But I wanted to know, like, did any of that kind of feed into then, like, the writing for No One Will Miss Her in terms of, like, writing as a metaphor? Because, like, you can kind of talk a little bit more about these things in, like, No One Will Miss Her in a more, like, less landmine kind of way, right? And kind of get into these topics and these subjects uh, without, like, being disruptive or, like, getting people riled up, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the the great thing about fiction is, you know, it's fiction is about conflict. And, um, you know, I was able in this book to explore a lot of the same topics that I like to explore as a journalist. Um, Like, what are we doing to each other? Um, How do we treat each other? What is happening to people? Um, You know, and what does it mean when we 
when we engage with each other in these sort of toxic ways. Um, and, you know, that's very interesting to me as a journalist. I like to kind of kick over the rocks and like, you know, point at what's under there and, and draw connections between, you know, between that and, and whatever else might be happening more broadly in the world. You know, where did this come from? How does it relate to everything else? Um, and so writing a novel is just another way into that. It's just another way to kind of, you know, uncover the narratives that that make us who we are. Yeah, and so what kind of research did you do for this? Because, like, you have a detective, you have a social media influencer, and obviously, like, uh, you have your classic insular small town. So what kind of research did you do for this? Um, well, I did consult some subject matter experts, uh, including a state trooper in my hometown of upstate New York. I just decided that whatever he told me about the way that criminal investigations work in New York, it would also, that would be how they worked in Maine. Um, the nice thing about writing fiction is that it's not a handbook. Nobody's going to be using my my novel to solve crimes, so I can fudge <laughs> details like that. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, you know, I, I talked to him about, you know, what happens when somebody gets killed? Like, you know, what is it like when you show up? You know, what is your, what kind of shape does your investigation take? Um, I was very curious to know things like, what, if you're, if you suspect somebody's involved in the crime, like, do you call them first to tell them you're coming to visit them? Or do you just show up at their door? Uh, you know, I was very, you know, I was very curious to know that. And then I found out um, that you just show up at their door. And I felt like I would make a really good police officer because that was my first instinct too. Yeah. It's like, don't give them any warning. You just go knock. Um, I talked to a lawyer, uh, a defense attorney um, to try and get a little insight into uh, can't without spoiling anything. Um, what would happen after you had potentially committed a crime and you had a a good argument for having done it in self defense? Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to um, a doctor about some of the uh, medical and death related details in the story, including um, certain. Let's see. Well. No, I shouldn't. I shouldn't talk about. I shouldn't talk about that. Um, All right, it would be. A, it would be a spoiler. Yeah. What is it? Was it fun talking to the state trooper though? That's gotta be kind of cool. I've never talked to a state trooper before. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, he was a uh, great, great resource. Knew so much. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> okay. um, uh, he actually, um, you know, in in addition to just being a great source of of factual information, he was able to add some color to the character of Bird because he said things in the course of our conversation that were very striking. Um, Like, for instance, there's this point where where Bird shows up um, at, you know, at this murder scene where somebody's uh, had their head blasted apart with a shotgun. And he says, or he thinks that, um, you know, it looks like cherry pie. And that's something that um, my my source said to me, Lenny Daniels said to me. Um, I did not come up with that on my own, mm-hmm. but it was so memorable, you know, to hear somebody describe like a horrible gunshot wound in that way. And I think it really kind of speaks to not just the vocabulary that police officers develop, but this sort of dark sense of humor that they develop surrounding acts of, of terrible violence mm-hmm. um, as a sort of a coping mechanism. Yeah, because they see the worst of us. Right. Like you generally don't get to see a lot of like <laughs> humanity. Right. You just kind of get to, to see the I guess the punchline of like where this relationship ended or whatever it may be. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, if you're investigating murders, like, you know, you're, you're basically not doing much to prevent the violence from happening. You know, you're, you're only arriving after it's already too late and the worst has already happened. And I don't, this is a terrible segue, but then like, so now we've touched upon the fact that you're like a journalist and kind of a cultural critic and you've written this novel, like how, I guess this is a big question, but like, you kind of do all these different things. Uh, you're a podcaster, yoga instructor. Like, how are you? How do you view your career in terms of like? So, if you're at a party, then like, how do you introduce yourself? What is it that you tell people that you do when people ask you? Because you're kind of all over the place, which is unique. Uh, but I think it also is like kind of circles back to what we we're talking about being freelance intellectually, whereas like you're freelance literally professionally as well in that sense, where like you're all over the place, but in a good sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, somebody asked me what I do at a party. Um, it depends. Sometimes I just say I'm a yoga instructor. Okay. <laughs> you just cover it up like that? You don't give them all the good stuff, all the fun stuff? It, you know, it, de- it depends. Um, you know, if uh, when, when you tell people you're a writer, um, sometimes that can end up taking over the conversation in weird ways. Um, and, you know, I'm interested in people. Like, when I'm talking to somebody at a party, I'm usually more interested in hearing about what they do and, mm-hmm. you know, what what they're up to. Um, yeah, you tell somebody you're a writer, um, either it becomes an invitation to talk about yourself, which is not always terrible, but um, also it, you know, people can kind of, I don't know, sometimes they clam up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing like when you're talking to a psychologist or something like that. You're like, oh, no, are you going to analyze now everything I say? And like, right, you kind of get that worry and that fear. Right. And of course, the psychologist is like, hell no. Like, you're not paying me. I'm not going to psychoanalyze you. I don't work for free. <laughs> I know. I'm off duty. Like, the sign is off. Like, yeah. And what you said about observation is interesting because I remember Chris Rock said one of the worst things that happened to him as a stand-up comedian was getting famous because – it changed the relationship of how he was able to go into places, how people would relate to him, how people would talk to him. Because mm-hmm. when he was like, even coming up on SNL, he was able to kind of blend in. And like you said, kind of connect with people, hear things, can uh, see what people were thinking. Uh, but now because he's famous, people kind of like, they tailor what they say to him. Right. And how they connect with him and like how they treat him and what they want from him. So it changes yeah. the dynamic. So I get what you're saying. Yeah, so the the novel is, like, it's connecting with people and people are having a good time with it. And, like, are you going to continue to, like, write in this kind of mystery thriller genre or are you going to go freelance and do, like, science fiction or something kind of weird after this? Well, um, I've been, you know, I'm still collaborating with the Alliances team on um, more properties in that universe that, uh, you know, we had the first book where you you and I first connected over Stan Lee's Alliances, The Trick of Light. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a novella, a prequel novella um, that just came out, I guess it was this past year. Um, it's uh which it was on Audible. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm completely forgetting what the pub date was. I think it was this summer. Um, and so, you know, I'm continuing to kind of, when an opportunity arises in that space to, you know, to work on something, um, you know, my door is always open and I'm always interested in collaborating there. But as a solo writer, I'm definitely going to stick with murder books. Um, that's sort of where my particular interests lie. All right. I think we covered quite a bit. We covered, uh, like... People from a small town can be snooty. I appreciated the fact that you named the the detective Bird. 
uh, <laughs> that part of it was called part and set in Boston. I like that little nod. Um, and that sometimes too, yeah, uh, it can be difficult to like be authentic and be be yourself online, knowing that there's going to be like that gap uh, between the public face and the private emotions that you have. Um, yeah, I think your dog barked at a couple of the questions, but I think you had a good time. <laughs> yes, well, he can't hear you. He's just, you know, back there being grumpy because, you know, we moved from the couch, which is his preferred place to sit, to the upstairs, which is not. So. Oh, yeah, no, that is grumpy. <laughs> By the way, before we wrap up and finish up, you recently tweeted out that you enjoyed Love Hard. I did. What was it about that? What about that movie on Netflix that you enjoyed? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm a real connoisseur of the like cheesy Christmas or holiday romance. Um, I, I I find these movies fascinating as a writer. I feel like I would really like to write one myself um, and because there's such a, they all follow a formula um, and yet there's so much room even within the confines of that formula to come up with things that are funny or creative or surprising. Um, and I thought Love Hard was a great example of that. You know, that you have this, I mean, I don't know, very contemporary, like kind of catfishing mm -hmm. story. Um, but then that followed, you know, of a much more old school kind of a romantic comedy format, you know, where you have, um, you know, somebody pretending to be somebody else. Like that's a very classic, almost kind of a screwball trope, um, you know, even, oh gosh, um, you know, old movies, like it has, um, so, yeah, you know, I, I I like to see the continuity between these original holiday romances, like like It Happened on Fifth Avenue or White Christmas, um, and the way those tropes kind of get updated, and they're still relevant, and they're still fun. I don't know, you know, what it is about holidays specifically that I think opens people up to to being willing to watch a movie in that vein where they're sort of otherwise on their way out. You don't see as many romantic comedies anymore the way you did in like the nineties, but you still get these, these cheesy Christmas movies. So yeah, I thought it was creative and, and fun and romantic. Um, the writing was great. And I mean, Nina, Dro uh, excuse me, Nina Dobrev is, is very charming. So, very charming. You know, yeah. The chemistry between her and her. Yeah. Her and her romantic lead. Who's I can't, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, um, Jimmy, um, Jimmy Yang, Jimmy Chang. I can't remember either. I'm drawing yeah, a blank. I don't know. Yeah. He's super, he's super cute. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was a good time. Yeah. Are you, you, when you talk about like cheese, are you also like accepting the, like kind of like the classic cheese, which is like the lifetime ones and the Hallmark ones? Cause those ones go super cheesy. Yeah. You know, as long as it's well-written, I think that you can absolutely accommodate for cheese. You know, there's nothing wrong with, with stuff being wholesome. I mean, look at Ted Lasso, like mm -hmm. that shit's cheesy, but it's, <laughs> but it's really well-written. Mm -hmm. um, and I, there is, I think this kind of hunger at this point for stories that feature <laughs> apparently Winston disagrees um but there's this hunger for stories you know about people who are doing their best um you know who who are ultimately good at heart you know who may stumble um but you know but who aren't evil we really delved for a long time into sort of the realm of the anti-hero 
mm-hmm. um, you know, especially in like in television. Yeah. And and we got kind of lost in these like darker yeah. stories where, you know, ultimately the person that you're watching, like what sets them apart is that they're not a good person, even if they claim to be. So yeah. I think that, yeah, you know, there's what we're seeing now is a sort of a move in a different direction. Um, it's yeah. like, let's, you know, let's do something wholesome. Is that almost like hope? Would you call that hope? I don't know. That might be too optimistic. I think that <laughs> I, I think it's more just like the the craving for a different flavor. There you go. All right. We can end it there. That's a positive note. Yeah. So <laughs> okay. the mystery thriller is uh, no one will miss her. Uh, you don't want to miss out on that. Uh, sorry, I had to do that one. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's out now and it's on all the usual uh, book places online. Uh, I will obviously put a link in there. Uh, way to go though! It was fun though. It was a it's a great read and like it surprises you because it starts off like not just because there's a twist or anything, but just because you know you start to uh, kind of get into that small town and all the like the tensions and all how people kind of like put you in those boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're looking at it from the outsider, like the detective, like Detective Bird. So when people start to do things outside of their box or outside of their assigned role, it surprises you. Because it's like, mm-hmm. I thought you were this thing or that person or whatever. Like, I had bottom-lined you, right? Based on what mm-hmm. the small town had done. So when people kind of step out of those boxes, it's interesting. Like, even just something as simple as Lizzie uh, putting up the lake house uh, as an Airbnb. You know what I mean? And the small town was like, yo, man, we frown on that. That's not something we do around here. So it's like mm-hmm. those little things, like, when people step out of those boxes and out of those assigned roles, it's really engaging. So well done. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to hear you liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it, Kat. Uh, thank you for hanging out. Um, hopefully I didn't take a Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, not at all. Thank you very much. Say hi to your dog, I guess. You can tell him you can go downstairs to the couch now. (laughs) I will. I'm sorry about the barking. (laughs) It's fine. Thanks, Sammy. Nice talking to you. Bye. Yo, that was Kat Rosenfield in Dialogue. Her novel is No One Will Miss Her. It's out now. I am Sammy, host of My Summer Lair. You gotta read No One Will Miss Her, a fantastic murder mystery when nothing and no one is as they seem. If you've got a social media account, you know exactly what I mean. I started this conversation jokingly talking about bad psychology, but there's so much of that online. You'll see plenty in response to Kat's dynamic cultural criticism work. Her writing is often thoughtful, rational, and it's clear. Whew. Wonderful online traits I treasure because they're so rare. Her passion for turning over rocks in a culture determined to leave the rocks where they are means that she rocks. Get it? It underscores her writing and no one will miss her. Early on, readers are introduced to the victim. Indeed, a victim in the crime sense, but also a victim of circumstances. I'm grateful she made the conscious choice to allow the victim to speak. Oftentimes with murder mysteries, the focus tends to be on the detective. But here, Kat grants her victim a platform and a voice, and she has much to share. Her victim mourns the simplicity of her life, a fact that many of the individuals in her small town can't seem to comprehend. Their empathy was gone before she was, if that makes any sense. Truthfully, there's a lot more to be said about No One Will Miss Her, 
but you got to read it for yourself. And then you know what? Drop by and tell me what you think. I'm at my summer layer for all three. The usual, Twitter, Facebook, and IG. My summer layer for all three. Read, no one will miss her, and tell me, what did you think? Did you see the twist coming? Thank you so much for listening to me in a true crime world. M. Night Twist, yo.